If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now, go. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the Olive Podcast. I'm Janine, Olive's deputy editor and podcast host, and each episode I'll be catching up with chefs, cookery writers, and characters from the food scene in Britain and beyond. Join us each week to expand your food knowledge as our guests share 10 things we need to know about the specialist subject. And do listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where they also reveal their top cooking cheats, hacks, and shortcuts. I'm delighted to welcome Ed Kimber back to the podcast today. Ed is an expert baker, food writer, and author of six brilliant cookbooks. His last book, Small Batch Bakes, was actually a Sunday Times bestseller. Ed is also a regular contributor to Olive Magazine, and you can find loads of his beautiful recipes online. And in the June issue, which is out in a couple of weeks, you'll be able to see inside his kitchen where the magic happens. (laughs) My surprisingly small kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) But it's still where the magic happens. Welcome, Ed. Thanks so much much. for coming. My pleasure. So you're here with your baking expert head on today as Mm -hmm. we discuss 10 brilliant ways to elevate your bacon. And I know you've got lots to share, so let's get into it. So firstly, we're going back to bacon. Basics. Yeah, I think oftentimes people try and do lots of fancy things to make their baking seem, you know, more presentable, more high-end, fancier. But I think a lot of people skip over fundamentals. And that's not a criticism. It's just a real observation about how people bake. And yeah. especially people who don't necessarily love to bake, they might read a recipe and kind of speed things up. So simple things like literally creaming the butter and sugar together properly. Right. It's such a basic thing, but actually it has everything to do with the texture of the final cake. Yeah. And so I think making sure you are really tuned into those real fundamentals of baking really makes simple things better. So you can make the simplest of cakes, but if you make it really well, it will just be a little bit more special. Yeah. And I think it's always worth thinking about taking your time, following the recipe really carefully and just remembering the basics of baking because it can really help make something just a little bit more special, but also just a little bit more professional seeming. Good advice. (laughs) Now, most people, when they think of bacon, think sweet bakes. Mm -hmm. And you wanted to talk a little bit about the role of sweetness. Yeah. So I think it's becoming more of a kind of hot button 
topic yeah. where people talk about it all the time. And it's really interesting to see what people do about sweetness in the same way that people make changes. Mm. What we have to remember is that sweetness, or sugar specifically, isn't just about sweetness. So sugar is also a huge impactor on texture, on the way something spreads, on the way something browns, on just the whole finish yeah. of the recipe. So for example, if you take a cookie, you can reduce the sweetness. And I think that's worth talking about because some things are really sweet and people's palates are slowly changing. Um, but you have to think about sweetness in a, a multi-kind of faceted way. Yeah. So. <laughs> I had this email a couple of weeks ago from someone who had taken a chocolate chip cookie recipe and they decided they'd never made it before and they decided it was going to be too sweet, which is perfectly valid. You know, if you <laughs> think you don't like sweet things, that's fine. But what they had done is reduce the sugar. I think they've reduced it by something like 60%. Wow, that's a lot. And they were emailing to ask why the texture was different. Because <laughs> if you take out all the sugar, the cookie won't spread. Yeah. It will be much more kind of puck-like. And it will be quite firm and crunchy. And so we had this conversation about if you want to reduce sugar, which I think can be really good because it can help highlight other things, um, you need to do it in really slow Amounts, uh, little like small amounts. increments. Yeah, yeah, so you can generally reduce sugar by twenty five percent without having a massive effect, but it will change the texture. It might make things last less amount of times because sugar also helps keep things moist um, yeah. and also keep things lasting longer. Um, but it can also just change the texture. So, I think sweetness is something we need to balance, yeah. and I think that's a really important thing because. I think there's nothing worse than something that just tastes incredibly sweet. Yeah, too much. Yeah, so I think when you're making something, you can temper sweetness in different ways. So you can um, up the salt, which can kind of balance the sweetness a little bit. Because I think of sugar basically as a seasoning in in one way. It does help to strengthen flavors. It also helps to balance flavors. And salt does obviously the same thing in baking. And I think it's a really old-fashioned thing to have recipes that basically just say a pinch of salt because actually you might need half a teaspoon, a quarter of a teaspoon. Um, But you can also change the type of sugar. So if you're talking about sweetness, you can temper the effect of sweetness by just literally switching to brown sugar. So brown sugar tastes less sweet Um. to our palate even though it's exactly the same sweetness level because it has much more complexity. So if you want something to taste less sweet but you don't necessarily want to change the texture dramatically, Mm. white to brown sugar is pretty decent. It will change the texture a little bit because it has molasses, so it might make things a bit stickier. It can affect the spread in a different way. It will be less crisp per se because it has that sticky molasses. But you can make switches to um, things like maple. Maple has a different sweetness level again, and it will affect texture. But I think it's always worth kind of sitting with a recipe and going, how do I want this to taste? Can I change the sweetness in a way that's more interesting without changing the texture? And I think it's kind of, it's always interesting just to kind of think about sweetness because I think more and more people are going, oh, too sweet. You see the move of people away from kind of American style buttercreams or they want ones that have a better texture, better finish, less sweet. And so I think it's always worth just going, will this be too sweet for people? It's a nice idea maybe you saying in the increments is... Take, looking at a recipe and thinking maybe maybe I'll switch out a percentage of that for a different mm-hmm. type of sweetness like the maple yeah, yeah, or the sure. brown sugar and just so you're not going like full hog. But also so, if you think about the elements of a recipe, so like there's the cake that we did for um, the Christmas cover a few years ago, the um, after eight bundt cake. Yeah. 
that has you know multiple elements in it. So you can reduce the sweetness by affecting just one oh, element. Oh, yeah, that's true. So if you don't want to change the texture of yeah. like the actual main body, like the cake, leave that alone. Change the sweetness in the filling. Maybe don't go with as much glaze. Reduce yeah. it that way. It's just kind of you just know taking it, it as a whole. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's all yeah. about balance for right. sure. Um, another thing you mentioned there about textures changing, and I know texture is a big a big thing for you. What tell us about that? What what why is that something we should be aware of? I think when you talk to kind of restaurant pastry chefs, one of the main things they will talk about is all of the elements in a dish, and that yeah. can be acid balance, salt balance, sweetness, and texture. I think you do not want, not all the time, sometimes you want like a, just a pleasingly soft cake and that's it, and that's great. But sometimes a way to kind of elevate it is to add in another texture to make it a little bit more interesting, a little bit more exciting. So say, for example, let's take the same cake, the after-eight cake. Um, it has a beautiful chocolate cake. It's got a cheesecake filling, mm. both soft, pretty tender, and then it has a chocolate glaze. So on there, there's not a huge soft, amount of variation yeah. texture. But years ago, we did another uh, bun cake, another chocolate bun cake for the magazine, which was a tahini. And we added texture in that one by adding a, a sesame brittle. I remember that was And much. it just made it kind of cool yeah. and it added this extra little crunch to it. Yeah. And I think it's a really nice way to kind of just think about how to make a recipe more exciting, to give it yeah. a little bit more interest. I also just think it makes it feel a little bit more professional. Yeah. Because what you're trying to do is sell the idea that this cake or this cookie or whatever is really special and yeah. adding texture in a different way so it's contrasting can do that really well. There is definitely a place for like an incredibly soft, <laughs> gooey cake, and that's great. But sometimes like adding that little extra just makes it kind of interesting and kind of keeps your imagination going a yeah. little bit. I, I follow, um, I don't know why, I, because I, I would never make them and I'm not a big baker, but <laughs> I'm fascinated by some like French patisserie mm -hmm. Instagram accounts like Cedric... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although his account you really me. annoys me Does a lot. It? All, all he makes is these ginormous things and it just feels really <laughs> wasteful because you can't serve them then because he's had his hands all over yeah. them. And... <laughs> but what I what I like watching is the multi, multi, yeah, multi exactly. layeredness. Yeah. Of, I, I, like, oh, the I French do it great. I can't believe he's going to make another thing. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, well, like, and there's, then... there's one thing that the French use that's really hard to get in this country and yeah. it's called... Fuletine. Fuletine, yeah, I was yeah. going to ask you about that. And it's basically, it's a type of crepe, yeah. effectively, but it's baked really dry yeah. and uh, really long and slow, and it goes completely crisp. And a really classic kind of patisserie way of adding in texture is you mix that with um, normally chocolate or cocoa butter or praline, and you create this thin, really light, Crunchy crisp layer. layer. Yeah. So if I was making a chocolate cake, for example, what I might do is... You might have a, a buttercream or a ganache filling, but underneath that, yeah. you might have a layer of that fuletine. So when you cut through, it's not crunch, it's really light, crisp, yeah. and it's delicious. So you'll see loads of patisserie recipes where there's a little hidden the layer, layer in that there. just to add that texture. Yeah. So there's basically a, like a style of French patisserie cake where it's layers of different mousses, different creams oh. with a glaze on the outside, and they are like incredibly detailed. But often every texture is quite soft because you've got a cream, you've got a right. mousse. Yeah. And so really often a base layer of that will be made with fuletine or with nuts to add texture because I think 
French patissiers really understand yeah. that like, little extra texture can really elevate something. But I like the fact that you're saying, you know, at home, we, you don't have to be like those mad French cakes. You can no, actually, no, so many you can ways. just see, actually, actually add just a little bit of, cre- you yeah, could like yeah, yeah. caramelize some nuts yeah. or something and have that. So it's just that like little added texture. That 100%. Gives you, I was making yeah. a, um, like a hazelnut mousse the other day and it was meant to be for like a dinner party dessert. And so you could have left it at just the mousse with a little bit of chocolate on top. It would have been delicious. But just to make it a little bit special, yeah. we just added some um, caramelized hazelnuts on top. That took like five minutes to make. Yeah. So it was not much extra work, but really made it seem a like lot special. more special. Yeah. Definitely. Or even, you know, if you can't be bothered, yeah, serving yeah. A, a lovely little posh biscuit on the yeah. side to like dip into your Or just crumble some um, chopped hazelnuts on it. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be something that takes forever to make, yeah. but it can just make things a little bit more interesting and special, yeah, I think. I love that one. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Next, we're going to talk about bakeware. Are you going to tell me I need to go out and buy 10 new tins, Ed? No. (laughs) But I do, I am a really big uh, proponent of something my mum says all the time that I probably found really annoying as a kid. And it's probably like, you know, um, buy cheap, buy many times, but buy good, buy once. That's not the phrase and not the saying, but I can't remember the exact wording. It's a lot more eloquent normally, but it is kind of true. Like cheap bakeware won't just not last very long. It can really affect how things turn out. So if you go to a supermarket and all the supermarkets are uh, at blame for this, they all sell really cheap uh, Chinese-made nonstick bakeware. And not that Chinese bakeware is necessarily bad inherently, but, but it's a bit mass-produced. All the supermarkets are doing yeah. this incredibly cheap bakeware that's really flimsy, um, which is a problem, and all coated in this old-fashioned black nonstick. Right. And it's two-pronged. Say you are using one of those really cheap uh, baking tins, like baking trays. As soon as you put it in heat, it's going to warp. Warps, yeah. And some of them will never go back into position. Yeah. Um, but black coatings also over-brown recipes. Oh, did they? So say, for example, you are um, you took an anodized uh, stainless steel pan, aluminium pan, and in the, put in the same pan 
the same amount of batter in the same oven at the same time. One of them's anodized. One of them is a black nonstick, like old-fashioned. The one in the black nonstick will be much browner on the outside, will be crisper on the outside. And it also just tends to mean there's a mismatch in texture. And it's because the black radiates the temperature and the heat more. So a lot of kind of more high-end or like good quality bakery companies are moving away from that color and they're doing kind of gray nonstick or a gold nonstick, which is slightly alleviates yeah. the problem. Um, but the quality of nonstick is really important because if you are going to use nonstick, which I don't use loads of, yeah. you need to make sure it's not going to scratch loads because as soon as that coating scratched, you kind of, you know, screwed. So it's just everything will last a lot longer. You'll end up spending less in the long run and the bakeware will, you know, behave as it's supposed to. Um, so, you know, like, Good quality baking trays will last you a lifetime if they're looked after. And it just makes small differences, but it might make the difference between a cake that's really weirdly browned at the edges versus one that feels a little bit more professional and neat and tidy, tastes better. Um, But the other thing that comes to bakeware, which is what I tell everybody, because Brits have this tradition of a, a weird pan... If you go and buy a sandwich tin, which yeah. is probably actually quite hard to buy these days, like an old-fashioned sandwich tin. It, I think it is, actually. Yeah. Probably, I hope so, probably because I've been whinging about it for 12 years. Um, they're really thin. They're not very deep. Yeah. And if you put the same amount of batter in a thin uh, cake tin versus, uh, say, a two-inch cake tin, yeah. the two-inch version is going to be uh, – it's going to rise higher. Yeah. It's going to have a nicer texture. It will rise flatter because it has room it's to got grow. The space, yeah. Whereas if you bake it in a thin tin, and you see this loads, like if you look at like um, people's, uh, I was going to put someone on blast, which I should not do because <laughs> it's not worth my time. But if you look at a lot of people's cakes, like kind of like the old fashioned homemade style, the they're really domed oh, and they've got really, really yeah. thin edges. Yeah. And it's because as the cake batter rises, it can't, go, it can't anywhere. go anywhere. So it ends up this incredibly like volcanoed top and it just isn't so the, the right the right tin for the job basically yeah, totally. if, if someone's bothered to specify a tin on a recipe yeah. size wise but you want to use that yeah totally but it's also probably worth just having them anyway because if you have a deeper tin you can bake a thinner recipe in it yeah, no of problem course you can you can bake it yeah a they're much smaller, more multi-purpose yeah. that way yeah. so um i tend to use um kind of like two inch deep tins for layer cakes because they tend to give really good yeah. layers for sure and what's the what, what's the material that you mentioned it's Ad- anodized it's just a way of finishing anodized aluminium aluminium yeah. aluminium uh, stainless steel Aluminium, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, lice. I know you're a fan of a fancy tin because you mentioned the bunt. (laughs) (laughs) And I I was on your blog and you said you love, these are great. Pullman tins? I didn't know those those existed. So Pullman's is um, a style. Yeah. It's not a brand. And they are not really until probably the last eight years maybe, not that common to find in a home kitchen. They're d- commercial pans, basically. And yeah. a, a normal Pullman tin is massive, very, very long, but incredibly straight square, sides. Square yeah. sides, it is. And I, I don't know if it's the defining factor, but in my head, it's the defining factor. It has a lid that you slide on top of the pan. Oh. And so if you think of like Japanese pandami, like those beautiful square uh, loaves of sandwich bread, yeah. they're baked with a lid on so that as the bread rises, it hits the lid and then forms it oh, into a squared off thing, yeah. side. Um, but they are now making uh, Pullman pans in a smaller, more domestic... Like a loaf size. Yeah, like That's normal... what I've seen on your on your blog. Yeah, You've exactly. got some beautiful loaf tins and it, it just makes it such a graphic shape. Yeah, I really it? like it. Like It just kind of... I don't know. It feels a little bit more bakery style. It looks really professional. Yeah, yeah. and I, I really love them. But because they are, again, they're slightly bigger, 
than, say, like a traditional loaf pan, which are quite short. Yeah. I find it's just a little bit more multi-purpose again. Yeah. So, um, although I say that I have like 7,000 tins in my yeah. house. So, you know, I don't need them, but I just, I find the straight edges of them really pleasing. Yeah. And if you do like bacon, I mean, a bunt tins, fab, isn't it, for making yeah. something look super fancy? Yeah, and it's really interesting with bunt pans because um, they were originally created by a company called Nordicware in America, and they actually own, I find this fascinating, they own the rights to the name Bunt. Do they? But they don't, my understanding is they don't protect that name because you will see like really cheap uh, bakeware manufacturers making what they call Bunts. Yeah. And I think there's a real issue with those, not because other people shouldn't be able to make them necessarily, but it's the same thing. They make them nonstick and their casting, this is really niche and nerdy, but the casting is not very deep. Yeah. It's not very deep. So when you bake a cake, if, if the kind of design of it is quite shallow, then when you bake it, often it doesn't come out as obviously. Oh, so right. for me, like I hate it when you go on a shoot and they're like, we've got you a bunt pan to use and it's not a proper one, not yeah. a Nordicware one, because the ridges don't show up as much, the uh, cake yeah, doesn't look as good. you get that real definition, don't you? Yeah. Uh, but the good thing about um, a proper, authentic bunt pan is it will literally last you yeah. your entire life. I've they got are, a couple and I, yeah. Yeah. They're just built to last. They're so heavy and like I've dropped them on the floor, no problem. They don't dint. So, yeah, it's a kind of sign of... It could also become an obsession. I'm just going to pull you up and say Ed would never turn up to a shoot and expect them to do He would always turn up with his own tin. I think I was filming some TV show and they're like, here's the tin you're going to use. I was like, oh, I know what you're like. You turn up with all the equipment. Yeah, your your special knife and your (laughs) special kind of palette knife as well, you know. Yes, I do take that palette knife everywhere. Okay, now on to one of my favourite flavours, which has become very trendy, brown butter. So what what does that bring to the party? So it's all kind of in the same sphere, really. So talking about like texture and sweetness, brown butter is just another way to layer in flavour. And I think often with baking, the perception is they're just sweet things. Yeah. But they can be so much more interesting than that. So one of the ways you can do that is browning the butter in a recipe. And like if you're going to make a chocolate cake, browning the butter is maybe not, there's no point because you no. won't taste that subtlety of it. But say you're making, um, I make a, a cream cheese frosting, yeah. which is butter, cream cheese, icing sugar, vanilla, salt, super easy. And it's delicious, but it is sweet by its nature. So you can make it less sweet, but also way more delicious by simply browning the butter element first, letting oh. it come to room temperature again, and then just continuing the recipe as normal. So you can me- so you can melt it, brown it. Because mm-hmm. I always thought once you melt it, it goes into kind of that solid, solid fat. How do you get yeah, it? Yeah. So the easiest way again? to do it is to whip it. Oh, so you yeah. whip it. So you because basically what will happen if you pour brown butter in a bowl, yeah. the solids will sink and yeah. you'll get like a creamier white uh, fat on top. Yeah. So the easiest way to do it is I pour it in the bowl and then pop it in the fridge and then every now and again just go and give it a stir. Give it a stir. And then once it's kind of like a soft, creamy texture, you can just use it. Uh-huh as you would do normally. But the flavor of that in something so simple as a cream cheese frosting, it just makes it like so addictive, so delicious. And it just adds this wonderful depth. Because so you're caramelizing the milk solids. You're taking the milk you? solids, yeah, and you're making it just a little bit more um, advanced in flavor yeah. and really pushing the ingredient as far as it will go. Yeah. Because all that flavor is in the butter already. Yeah. You're just kind of unlocking it. Um, you do have to take into account that when you brown butter, you're eliminating water. 
So in, in the EU, in, in the UK, butter is normally 82% yeah. fat and the rest is water unless it's salted. So when you brown butter, you're losing 18% of its weight in water. So that will affect texture. So if you want the recipe to be exactly the same as it was before, but you want to boost the flavor by browning the butter, yeah. just replace the water content that was there. And that can just be with water okay. or it can be with like, other liquid like ingredients. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And what sort of recipes would that be? I mean, you, you mentioned the buttercream. I'm thinking like pale cakes, something like, yeah. a, you know, sponge cakes or madeleines or like small It's great little... in madeleines for yeah. sure. Um, it's delicious in cookie doughs, yeah. frostings. Lovely, yeah. It's not great in anything that's got an incredibly strong flavor, flavor of its because own. because you're just going to lose it, aren't yeah. you? Yeah. So yeah. I don't ever do it for like a chocolate cake. And i confused why people do because I don't really see yeah. the point. It would be great in say like a white chocolate something because yeah. it would help balance would sweetness, sort of... but it would also add in that extra depth for sure. Okay. Cool. Okay, now another slightly out there ingredient, toasted milk powder. Yes. So this is a follow-on because it's basically concentrated brown butter. Oh, because you're doing the caramelization exactly. thing again. So right. if you think about what brown butter is, you're basically taking the milk solids that are in the butter yeah. and browning it. Milk powder is basically milk solids. So if you brown it, you have a powdered form of brown butter, basically. So you can either amplify brown butter by adding some in, yeah. or you can add brown butter flavor to something that doesn't need browning. Uh, and it is, it's it's something I've only been doing for about six months, and okay. I'm just obsessed with it. So what, what when we talk about milk powder, are we talking about like the stuff that my, my grandma powder. used to get? Yeah, I can't remember the, the old brand like of it. Like Marvel. But, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's no, it, I just, because she used to always have a tin of Marvel, yeah. because I don't know why. It's a real fashion thing. Because Fresh it was, milk was available, yeah. but she always used to have Marvel <laughs> in UHT, you know, just in case the shops yeah. ran out of milk. Exactly. But it's, it, it's so delicious. So you can do it two ways. You can do it in a frying pan, which is how I do it, yeah. because you've got a bit more control. And yeah. you're stirring it around for 10, 15 minutes. Until you get the color. Until you get a really nice caramelized color. And you can take it quite far if you want. Or you can throw it on a baking pan, a baking tray, and put it in the oven. It's it's uh, less direct heat, so it takes longer. Yeah. Um, and you'll need to check it quite frequently. Whereas if you're doing it over pan, it's 10 minutes done. And it keeps for ages. One. Pop it in a jar. Yeah. Leave it at room temp. It's great. But there is a second way of doing it. So if you're already browning some butter, so say, for example, the cream cheese frosting yeah. I mentioned, you're browning the butter already. Say you've made uh, the uh, toasted milk powder in the past, but you've run out, but you do have some regular milk powder. Yeah. Add it to your butter as it's melting, and as the butter starts to brown, so will the milk powder oh, wow. in the butter. So you can just give it a boost that way if you don't want to make it in advance. Um, but it really can amplify yeah. the flavor. So I make a cream cheese frosting, that's what I call double brown butter frosting, and it's so delicious. It really helps to reduce perception of sweetness. Yeah. And the flavor is just amazing. So I'm, it's the same thing as to why um, caramelized white chocolate has yeah, its flavor. Yeah, I was, I was going to mention that you were the f the person that introduced me to caramelized white chocolate, and we were on a My shoot, job and you done were, and, <laughs> <laughs> and and Ed was was going, oh yeah, I'm going to caramelize this white chocolate. You put it all in a in a, in a a baking Yeah, you just put it in a dish with a rim, yeah. With a rim, put it in the oven, and then kept taking it out and stirring it. And I was like, this is going to be a disaster. Like, what's going to happen? It's going to seize? Well, or it can look happen? like a disaster as yeah, well if you leave it, it in for a little back. bit too long. Yeah, yeah, so basically it's just, it's slightly different in that 
a lot of the flavor is actually coming from toasting the sugar yeah. in white chocolate, um, which is why really, really high quality white chocolate that's got lots of cocoa butter in can actually take a lot longer to caramelize yeah. because the sugar content's wow. lower. Um, but it's so delicious and gets all of its flavor from caramelization. Um, and so you can take the same product, white chocolate, and make it taste so much less sweet because caramelized sugar yeah. tastes less sweet than uncaramelized sugar. And caramelized white chocolate is absolutely delicious, isn't Can't it? have it in the house. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it will not hang around. Like posh caramac. Do you know caramac has no chocolate in it? No one knows this, but it's it's What's vegetable it oil of? and sugar. I still love it, though. I don't think I've had one for a long time, but that's yeah. what I used to say to people. I, I mean, in my head, I'm thinking it's still good. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I know you can get a posh version, can't you? Like probably. the Valrona do that. Yeah, Dolce. I mean, Valrona do that Dolce, which is is like the poshest caramel growing Interestingly, all. that one has unsalted butter in it. Does it? So Valrona's version of caramelized white chocolate has dairy butter in it. And I've never understood, quite understood why. why? I think it's to make it creamier because... When you caramelize white chocolate, it can go a little bit uh, less creamy yeah. when it melts. So maybe it's like a mouthfeel. Yeah, thing. probably. Yeah. Um, but yeah, caramel, I was fascinated when I looked into the ingredients. Basically just vegetable oils and sugar. Wow. But it will be caramelized sugar, so it's getting its flavor it's getting from the same there. place. Yeah. It is, it's lovely, though. <laughs> I love that stuff. Okay, let's talk a bit about layering of flavors. I guess this is about adding things that are complementary or boosting. Yeah, for sure. So... The kind of classic way of doing that would be adding uh, some form of coffee to a chocolate recipe. Yeah. And it's really, it's actually quite funny because some people will say, oh, I made you a coffee chocolate recipe. I'm like, mm, you shouldn't be tasting the coffee. Coffee is often used in chocolate because that kind of roasted flavor helps yeah. to boost the roasted flavor. So you in shouldn't be able chocolate. to taste the coffee in it. You can. Like, it's I like would a back note rather but to than me, it. it's meant to be a back note where you just taste this really strong roasted okay. flavor from the chocolate. Um, and that works great. Like, it really helps to elevate chocolate flavors. But it's also things like making sure you add salt to buttercreams because yeah. you don't want something to taste just of sugar. You want to really kind of boost that flavor yeah. or soften the sweetness. And salt really helps to do that. Yeah. Um, but it's also things about pairing flavors together to make something not just chocolate. You know, I make a... Um, uh, macaron years ago that was chocolate, coffee, and passion fruit, which seems like a really weird pairing, yeah. but it worked so well. You did well. a chocolate passion fruit cake, lay oh, cake probably. back in the day. It was a day. flavor. Oh, yes. Yes. The Cover. one that I dropped on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were on the shoot and it was in a freezer and I had made two, thankfully, yeah. but I opened the freezer and the cake just went poof, <laughs> slipped out of the freezer and just like dented. And we tried to shoot it. And you it were so cool awful. about it. You were like, it's fine. I'll just build up this side again. But you I luckily... think my parents were visiting set that yeah. day and I was like in my head like going crazy. Um, but yeah, I think like just thinking about adding an additional complementary flavor or even a clashing flavor that you think will work together yeah. can be great. Like I'm not a fan of, say, raspberry and chocolate together. I think there's a weird clash there it's just not my favorite but passion fruits acidity yeah somehow pairs with especially milk chocolate so nicely yeah and then coffee was there to kind of give it a bit of backbone kind of give it a little bit less brightness and bring it down a little bit yeah um but i think it's always worth thinking about do i want to take this cake and just serve it as is simple chocolate or do i want to make it a little bit more kind of interesting a little bit more And sexy. I know you're a big fan of spice, in oh, particular yeah. cardamom. I know it's your, you're like huge <laughs> to my spice. boyfriend's <laughs> huge disappointment who hates cardamom and sweet things. I, yeah, I think adding spice into things can work 
so mm. nicely, especially cardamom. Cardamom is the baker's spice of yeah. choice, I'm convinced. Cardamom buns, I had one the other oh, day. Oh, yeah. Cardamom really buns are just heavenly. Yeah. But cardamom also goes great with other flavors. It's great with coffee, great with chocolate. It's really good with certain fruits, like stone fruits work great with cardamom. Um, but then like adding a tiny pinch of cinnamon, like a really tiny pinch of cinnamon to, say, an oatmeal cookie, to me, isn't adding cinnamon flavor. The idea, it yeah, boosts yeah. the oat flavor. Yeah. Um, my partner, who also hates uh, cinnamon in sweet things. <laughs> oh, you need to get rid of I know, him. I know. It's seriously <laughs> disappointing. Um, he thinks that he can taste it. But to my mind, I'm adding like a tiny pinch. Yeah. And I think it really boosts the kind of earthiness of the oats and makes it taste more like an old-fashioned, like, yeah. classic oatmeal recipe. And talking of chocolate, I know that people can get very confused about chocolate percentages mm -hmm. and quality, so you wanted to just speak a bit about that. Yeah, so I think one way to really up the quality of things is to use good ingredients. And I'm really aware, like, hyper-aware that chocolate is an expensive ingredient. And there is that kind of thought of using, you know, the really cheap supermarket chocolate. Yeah. And I'm not against that. The only thing you have to bear in mind is that the cheaper the chocolate, generally higher the sugar content is, the less pronounced the chocolate flavor will be. Um, if you think of the Big B brand in a big bread packet, for example, that is a dark chocolate. Right. But it's incredibly black. But then when you look at the percentage of cocoa in it, it's very low. Yeah. So they're making what would normally be milk chocolate levels of cocoa and somehow making it taste incredibly bitter oh, okay. and roasted. And what they do is they take low-quality cocoa, or traditionally that's what it would have been, and they roast it much further than you would do normally because it hides the impurities and makes something that doesn't taste interesting. It just tastes oh. roasted. And that's why the color's so dark, because it's been roasted further. Okay. And then they pack it full of sugar, and the sugar also helps to dull some of those more interesting notes that you get in chocolate. So you can use it, but it won't taste as interesting. It won't taste yeah. as good, in my mind, because it's also just they've hidden all the interesting features you can get in good chocolate. Yeah. Um, but I am also really aware that chocolate's really expensive, and like good chocolate is also really expensive. But it is one of those things that you have to think about how it's made, yeah. the fact that um, if you're buying really cheap chocolate, there's a good chance you're buying into a system that actually uses child slavery wow. um, because, unfortunately, child slavery still has a big place in chocolate making. Yeah. So um, from an ethical point of view, I try not to use cheaper chocolate or what yeah. I call cheap chocolate. But also just from a flavor point of view, you can do so much more interesting things with good quality chocolate because the good chocolate makers are there to highlight what's special about yeah. the cocoa beans. You can go on a bit of a journey with it, oh, aren't you? Oh, massively. So the, uh, last week I got sent to, to test from a company I work with occasionally. It's a chocolate company called, um, uh, not Bare Bones, it's a Scottish company. It's called um, Islands Chocolate. It's a British bean to maker, and they have a much stronger connection with the farmers because I believe it's their farm where the cocoa is grown. Okay. And they just started making white chocolate, which... A lot of high-end chocolate makers don't necessarily make because they don't see it as a space you can make something interesting because white chocolate goes through a process generally called deodorizing where you're taking cocoa butter that they bought from some mass manufacturer who may have got from all different places, yeah. melted it together, and it can have really off flavors. 
which are not very nice in white chocolate. So they go through this process called deodorizing, which takes out basically all the flavor. Yeah. So you're left with a product that helps with mouthfeel and texture, but means that white chocolate tastes it's sweet. It's sweet, yeah. yeah. Which I get, like, I like white chocolate because I'd like sweetness, but it's not the most interesting. So what islands have done, which is more unusual, is they have taken cocoa butter from their own farm, I believe, um, and they haven't had to deodorize it because they control the whole process. And so they've kept all the flavor wow. that's in cocoa butter and turned it into this really high-quality white chocolate. I was uh, I was really fascinated by it. So I was giving it to people blindfolded, not telling them what it was, yeah. and just said, what is this? All of them said milk chocolate. Wow. Because cocoa butter, when it's not gone through this process, has so, so much, much flavor. flavor. So it's much less sweet. But it obviously costs chocolate. a lot more to process it that way, which is why people aren't doing it. Yeah, and yeah. it probably won't be sold as a bar on the high street, for example, no. because it's probably more of a restaurant supply thing. Yeah. But if you just think about chocolate as an ingredient like we would do meat, for example, you know, food magazines, food writers, food programs all talk about ethical purchasing of meat for ethical reasons, but also for flavor reasons and texture reasons. And the same is true for chocolate. There's a huge ethical question about buying chocolate, but there's also a huge difference, like incredibly massive difference in the quality, taste and texture in chocolate. Yeah. The one thing I'll say is in cookies, for example, use whatever chocolate you really love the taste of. It, when chocolate is added as an inclusion, it's not part of the base recipe, like yeah. in a chocolate cake, you can use whatever you want because it will taste the same. It's not going to transform in the oven. You mean like you're putting chips in cookies? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if, you, if, you, if you've got a bar of chocolate that you think is delicious and yeah. you want to make some cookies with it, go for it. Use whatever you like. If you're making a cake, for example, and the recipe says 60%, 62%, 65%, try and aim to something that's Around close that, to yeah. that. Because what we don't consider, and I don't necessarily think food writers have done a great job at explaining this. If you take, for example, the Big Red Bar, which is like 35 40% cocoa yeah. butter, versus what the recipe calls for, which is, say, 70%, yeah. 40% means you're adding way more sugar because 40% is cocoa. Most of the rest is sugar. Okay. So A, it's going to taste sweeter, but also you're changing the fat levels because 40% cocoa butter chocolate or cocoa solids chocolate means there's less cocoa fat oh, okay. in that chocolate. So it can really change the texture of so something you're going to get a drier in cake, the recipe. Drier cake, well. crumblier cake. Yeah. So if there's a guide given... And it's a good food writer that you can understand yeah. why they've given it. And it's not the same for every single recipe, including like adding to a chocolate chip cookie recipe. Then generally it's there because there's a reason, which is yeah. why a lot of baking recipes stick to around 70% because it's very accessible. Um, but yeah, just try and think about what you're actually, what is, what's been called for. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, using quality ingredients kind of goes across the spectrum. So there's a really big difference between, say, going to the supermarket and buying a two-pound tub of vanilla essence, which has this kind of very pale look to it, versus buying a real vanilla extract or vanilla bean paste. And it's because when vanilla is incredibly cheap and it's called essence, which is rare and rarer, thankfully, it's not made with vanilla. It's made with a, um, a chemical called vanillin. It's actually chemical. It's not. It's not well, everything's chemical, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds scary. Um, but it's it's basically artificial vanilla. Yeah. And it's really weak tasting. 
you could add a whole bottle and it wouldn't taste of anything. Okay. So vanilla is one where you are getting what you're paying for. There's just no way around that. Not everything needs vanilla. I think us as food writers sometimes fall into the pattern of adding vanilla to literally everything. But when you're going to use a really good quality vanilla, that flavor will shine through. God, so many amazing tips and tricks there, Ed. Just want to talk briefly about you and what you're doing, because I know that you've just (laughs) launched... And everyone is. Everyone seems to be launching a Substack. What is it? <laughs> yeah. So I had been on Patreon, which yeah. is a um, kind of direct form of publishing. Um, but Substack basically poached me. It's a newsletter uh, platform. Yeah. And so I, over the last kind of 12 years of doing this, 13 years of doing this, I kind of started to take things a little bit more into my own hands. Yeah. Um, because I really like the freedom of just kind of going, you know, waking up one day and going, oh, this sounds delicious. I'm going to work yeah. on something. And so the way Substack works for me is I have two versions. One is a free subscription, which we've just about to hit 12,000 subscribers, which I'm thrilled about because it's only been on there for six months, I think we've been up. And then I have a paid uh, subscription. And they both provide recipes. Um, and the paid one is obviously uh, kind of behind a paywall. It's exclusive. And you get recipes every single week. Um, and it's kind of my place for um, playing around with yeah. fun things that might not be publishable elsewhere or are really of the moment. So the kind of traditional publishing I can't get to in yeah. time. Um, or it's kind of behind the scenes at my favorite bakeries. Like I'll go and spend a day in the kitchen and like um, write about the bakery. Yeah. Or it's sometimes there's competitions on there. It's just a fun place to yeah. kind of follow baking. And I would bit. say out of all the... Um, the con- people out there making content, you absolutely deliver. Like, we, I mean, you are, you're obsessive. <laughs> <Very tired. laughs> like, when do you ever get any time to do anything else? Because oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm always amazed at also the quality, because you do a lot, you, you, you know, you've photographed your own book, so your yeah. photography is stunning as well. Yeah, so I think the quality the of, of stuff that you put out there <laughs> is just amazing. Yeah, Once, I try really hard. And where can people find that? So it's just, um, if you search Ed Kimber Substack, it'll be the first yeah. hit. It's also cool. linked in my social bios. Yeah. Um, I'm at the boy who bakes on everything even though social media is slowly killing me <laughs> uh, I will be there until I'm dead <laughs> <laughs> oh brilliant um, thanks so much for coming My to pleasure. chat to us Ed as always it's been an absolute pleasure thank My you pleasure. thanks thank you for listening to the Olive Podcast for recipes and more information head to olivemagazine.com do remember to listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where our guests reveal their best cooking cheats hacks and shortcuts And don't forget to subscribe at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.